0: to the Damascus Road podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, onto this week's episode. I'm going to be blunt with it. Today, we're talking about sex we probably had way too much fun trying to come up with a title for this week. And you can see that we landed on the very appropriate, subtle illusion of fruit and flesh. Um, But because some of our alternate titles are just too good to go unacknowledged, I wanted to share the joys of these with you. All right, firstly, a classic, Boobs and Butts. Very straightforward, to the point, important parts of sexiness. Or we had, Moan and Groan. Um getting into the action a little bit. Or thrust and lust. Also solid. Well, he is probably. <laughs> um, poking and stroking, which really makes me laugh. But my personal favorite that I want to share with you guys is fingering and lingering. I can't even comment. I'll just let you guys soak in the beauty of that. <laughs> just wanted to share those gems with you guys today so you know you get in the mood with where we're going. But there's too much to talk about. I don't have time to warm you up, despite that not being best practice in sex, so let's just get in there and get started. All right, so a lot of this material that I'm going to be working us through today is taken from the podcast God and Sexuality by Bridgetown Church, which is pastored by John Mark Comer, and it is excellent. I highly recommend it, and it covers way more than what I can touch on in just one message today, so if you're interested in more researches on sex, I highly encourage you to listen to that but I wanna go ahead and start in the same place that John Mark Comer does with orienting us to our current sexual landscape because it has actually changed radically in the past 50 years. And these changes really inform our conversation and what's been happening around sex in our culture. So there have been these five tectonic shifts that have taken place in our sexuality in the past half century. All right, so this first one, and this is maybe the most important one, Unlike since the beginning of time, sex has been disconnected from childbearing and family. Now you may not realize this, but the birth control pill wasn't invented until 1960. And it wasn't until 1972 that it was even legal for doctors to prescribe it to single people. Think about that. Your grandparents probably didn't have birth control. That's only two generations away from you. In just the lifespan of your grandparents, we've gone from having sex equaling a very high likelihood of making a baby to sex having a very low likelihood of making a baby. And this disconnect is staggering because for most of human history, it was not an option to experience sexuality without at least a high risk of long-term responsibility. This is a huge shift. All right, second tectonic shift, sex has been disconnected from marriage. Now, I'm not implying that people didn't have extramarital sex before 50 years ago. Clearly, that's not the case. But with the removal of any long-term responsibility tied to sex after the advent of the pill, the necessity for marriage and a stable family unit to bring any possible children into has evaporated. There is no need to limit my sex to someone I consider to be a decent child-rearing partner because the chance of me accidentally making a baby with someone that I really don't want to make a baby with is a lot lower, even if we have sex. So this has created an environment for sex that doesn't have any long-term commitment attached to it. Third tectonic shift. Sex has been disconnected from male-female relationships. In the 1980s, the social justice movement for LGBTQ rights really took off and it made huge headway with the discrimination and ostracization that that community has dealt with for a long time. And now multiple sexual expressions have become mainstreamed and celebrated. Fourth, sex has been disconnected from love, emotion, and relational commitment of really any kind. This is kind of tied to the marriage shift, but it is a little bit more expansive. Um, So consider this, unlike my grandma who got married at 18 to her high school sweetheart, the current average age for marriage in the US is 31 for women and 33 for men, which is a whole extra decade of singleness that people are dealing with. Now in this extra decade of singleness, people still want sex. But since relationships are time consuming, messy, and require limitations and sacrifice and money, people have shifted to sex without relationship to get the good stuff without the baggage. Consider dating apps like Tinder. Hookup culture is rampant. Sex, divorce, from relationship. Now, perhaps most alarmingly, is shift number five. Sex has become increasingly disconnected from actual people. Which you might think, that's weird. Aren't two people kind of necessary for sex? You know, it takes two to tango. But with the advent of the internet in 1989, that was just 30 years ago, and the now widespread availability and accessibility of porn, an actual person isn't needed at all to engage in sex. You can just watch porn, sex disconnected from people. Now, ultimately, none of these shifts in sexuality are particularly novel. People have been trying to get around the double pink line for hundreds of years. Um, People have had sex outside of marriage since time began. Same-sex relationships and other iterations of sex are well-documented during Greek and Roman times. And it is not new that someone wants to get the milk without buying the cow. These aren't like weird shifts, per se, in sexuality. But what is different between the last half century when these shifts took place have taken place and the rest of human history is starting to pitch these shifts as moral progress, as liberation from the oppression of religion and society and culture. And in some ways, that's true. Sex has been problematic for a long time. It has been misused and abused and taken advantage of people and devalued the powerless for centuries. I'm not trying to imply that everything was so much better 50 years ago in terms of sex, because there are many issues and problems with our sexuality and the way that we've treated each other that some of these shifts have tried to address. What I'm hoping to help us see by looking at these shifts is the current sexual landscape that we're swimming in and those major tectonic shifts that got us to this place. Because these shifts also tell a story. They tell us a story about what sex is, about what matters, about what we should do with our sexuality, and the stories we tell ourselves really matter. According to John Mark Comer, this is a brief sketch of the current cultural story around sex um, that we're being told. First, we are animals. We just have needs and desires that we seek to meet like any other animal. There is no meaning or purpose to the human body, to gender, to sexuality, other than evolutionary function. Our parts are just plumbing. Gender is a social construct, it's imaginary, something developed by the patriarchy to control and define people. Sex is just grown up play, this biological release whose primary function is just pleasure. Love is a feeling of happiness that you get from being with another person or having sexual desire for another person. Marriage is also a social construct. Monogamy is not natural, and the only point of marriage is your own personal happiness, should you choose to get married. Um, On the converse, divorce is an enlightened decision for two people who are no longer compatible or who grow out of love because if the point of marriage is happiness, marriage is not necessary when I am no longer happy. This is regrettable if you have children with your partner, but it is also important to teach your children to be true to yourself and to be happy regardless. Next, the Bible is a collection of human writings full of sexism, racism, and patriarchy. Any and all forms of external authority are oppressive if they are imposed on you by somebody else. This authority and these rules will also keep you from happiness. Next, you make your own meaning. You be you, your truth, is your truth. Or follow your desires. There are not moral or ethical distinctions in sex. Customize your life based on your preferences and your unique sexual profile because desire plus consent equals freedom. This is the sexual story that we are told by our culture that has come out of these five tectonic shifts in sexuality that paved the way for this messaging. But despite the moniker of sexual liberation and sex positivity, this story about sex has maybe not lived up to its promise. The queer Christian writer, Melinda Salmas, who writes extensively about sexuality and gender issues in God says this, beneath all the pageantry of free sex and self-love, there's a fundamental belief that the body doesn't mean anything. You can do anything that you like with it. You can pleasure it with a vacuum cleaner or get a drunken stranger in an alleyway to whip it. And you can give it away to anyone for any reason. It's just a sort of wet machine, a tool that you can use in exchange for whatever purpose suits your fancy. In order to believe this, you must either A, accept that your body is not you, it's just a shell or a juicy robot that the real you, the disembodied ghost, controls or B, that there is no such thing as human value or dignity. It's just a nice pretense that we make because we are terrified of the senseless and nihilistic universe. Ironically, Christianity, which has always been accused of putting God before man, stands alone amongst a host of modern philosophies, declaring that man is a unified, complete being, composed of both a mind with a free will and a body all of which has dignity and meaning. And John Mark Comer continues to call this cultural story into question. Secular culture looks at the church and accuses it of being uptight and anti-erotic. This is partly true, but the church might well protest that much of its sexual reticence is rooted in the fact that it is one of the few voices still remaining that are challenging anyone about sexual responsibility. The church could also challenge any culture that claims to have found the key to healthy sexuality to step forward and show the evidence. Everyone is struggling. And when you look at the statistics, everyone is struggling. Young people are having less sex than they have in over 50 years. Rather than the sexual liberation movement leading to more sex, to freer sex, it is actually leading to the opposite. We are seeing an endemic of population crises where nations are literally struggling to get people to have real sex with each other and make babies. People feel less equipped and able to develop relationships with real people in which to have real sex because the shifts in our sexual landscape have just left us floundering. And there's this growing negative rhetoric around sexuality that's not coming from the church, but coming from the world in media and movies and the art we create that portrays sex as dark and messed up, non-relational, transactional, abusive. Our popular media is picking up on the heartbeat of our people, people who are jaded and cynical about sex. And this tells me that there is a lot of hurt and anger and trauma speaking. We are just starting to reap the consequences of this last half century and the shifts that we've made around sex. And it's not as bright or happy and liberating as we were promised. Now, unfortunately, we can't just ignore this, and we shouldn't want to, because sexuality is core to our humanity, core to your felt experience of being human. God made us sexual creatures in his image. Whether you are gay, single, straight, a widow, a widower, married, bi-curious, gender fluid, our sexuality is core to our human experience. And this is why sexuality has long been a target for the enemy because it is an easy access point to our vulnerability, to the most tender place of who we are in a way that few other things can be. First Corinthians 6.18 reminds us that they who sin sexually sin against their own body. Now this is a complex statement, but I think that some of what Paul is getting at here is the truth that sex affects us disproportionately to other things. When sex goes south, and sex goes south a lot. It's not just because of these cultural shifts or this cultural story, but because people have been hurting each other since the beginning of human action. And there is a deep, deep pain that sexuality can bring to our personhood. I wanna ask, who here hasn't been hurt by sex? I can't raise my hand. Sexual addiction, Molestation, abuse, broken families, trust issues, adultery, infidelity, body image, our meat market culture, fear, dysfunction, shame, guilt, loneliness, confusion over what is, lust, desire, gender, faith, aging, orientation, identity, itself. There's a collective pain of our society around sexuality. And it's not just the world, it's the church too. Sex is eating followers of Jesus alive, and it is producing a staggering amount of confusion and hurt. I recognize and acknowledge that sex touches on a deep place in our souls, and that you have probably been hurt by sex. And I want to approach this conversation with sensitivity and compassion, and never shame or blame, because these are gentle, vulnerable, hard conversations to have, and sex is deeply personal. If you are struggling with sex, or gender, or your sexual orientation, or your relationship with your body, or if you have been hurt by sex, I want you to know that you are not alone, and that you are welcome here. So with that recognition of our collective and individual pain and vulnerability around sex, I wanna turn to another story. We've looked at the cultural story around sex and where that has come from with these sexual shifts in the past 50 years. But what does Jesus have to say about sex? What other narrative is available to us? Now, the church has not always given helpful narratives around sex and it is good that we push against those negative narratives too. Some of you may carry scars around sex inflicted by the Church, and I am so sorry that followers of Jesus have hurt you in a way that Jesus himself would never be okay with. Now, historically, the Church has had a very strained relationship with sex, resulting in a lot of fear and repression of our sexual selves. The Church's stance has often come from this fear of desire, where the prescription is moral standards plus our willpower equals holiness but we know that this formula doesn't work. Moral standards plus willpower does not result in a healthy, flourishing sexuality, as we've seen evidenced in the rampant and tragic sexual abuse in the church and in the little statistical difference found between Christians and non-Christians in terms of premarital sex, cohabitation, divorce, and porn addiction. Moral standards plus willpower results in failure repressing our sexuality is not the answer. But if the answer is not fear or desire, like the historical church said, or following new desires, like our culture says, how do we best relate to sex in a God-honoring, flourishing way? Well, instead of fearing our desire or following our desire, we are called to form our desire. Now, why are we called to form our desires? John Tyson, an Australian pastor of a church in New York City, says this. When you see sexual sin as a variation from God's power, it does seem to have, of all the other sins out there, a disproportionate formative power in who we are. How we use our sexuality and engage with our sexuality forms us. And as followers of Jesus, we are called to be formed more and more into the image of Christ. So sex really matters. This is why scripture has such strong language about sex. Not because God's a killjoy. God loves sex. But because God knows how formative sex is to our personhood and who we are in a disproportionate way to other practices we might do. If we look back at that verse from 1 Corinthians 6, 18, it says, run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. And as Ryan talked about two weeks ago, our bodies are us and we are our bodies. We cannot separate the two. Unlike the cultural messaging that says, what we do with our bodies doesn't matter. Jesus says that what we do with our bodies matters deeply because our bodies are us. Pastor John Tyson talks about this phrase of sinning against our bodies as to distort our personality or ourselves. When we give ourselves to something, we bend towards it. What we do with our sexuality deeply shapes us and it is not something that we can treat flippantly. So we bring our sexuality to Jesus, just as we bring all aspects of our personhood to Him, and we ask Him, shape me, form me. We bring our sexuality to Jesus, who was so kind to those who struggled with their sexuality. And we say, I want you to be Lord of all of my life, every state of my life, including my aroused state. Here I am, Lord, I offer myself to you. The question then becomes when it comes to our sexuality, not fear or blind following, not morality or behavior, but who am I becoming? By the way that I'm using and giving myself to sexuality, who am I becoming by participating in this practice? This is the question of formation, and we are called to form our desires. First Thessalonians says this, God's will is for you to be holy. So stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. Never harm or cheat a fellow believer in this matter by violating his wife, for the Lord avenges all such things, as we have solemnly warned you before. God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching, but is rejecting God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, I think it's because of passages like this that the Bible gets a bad rap about sex. Um, Because there's lots of passages like this that warn against sexual sin. But like I said before, God loves sex he created sex, and sex is good and beautiful and power and this holy gift in the right context. Scripture is not saying this because it doesn't want us to have sex, but because Scripture understands the power of sexuality in our formation. It understands the goodness and holiness of that gift. And that is why it gives us prohibitions, not to stunt our desires, but to save our desires. These guideposts serve to form us and guard us from deformation. And we play an active role in this formation by choosing to control our desires instead of blindly following them, which we do by submitting our sexuality to the Holy Spirit. And while totally antithetical to the cultural story around follow all your desires, we intuitively know that just following anything you wanna do is not a good plan in any other area of life. You spoil a child and deform her character by saying yes to any whim that the child wants. We all know this, but we throw the wisdom of the universe out the window as adults with sexuality by saying, I can pursue any desire that I have. When we don't just follow our desires, we have to examine our desires, which produces a chaste introspection of why do we want what we want? Being able to not engage in sex at will is actually a gift that forms and disciplines our desires and shapes our character towards servanthood rather than selfishness, that shapes us more and more into the image of Christ. But this is easier said than done. I recognize I too have struggled with sex and temptation and the powerful drives and longings that sex creates. Sex is powerful. Um, But I want to invite you to begin embracing the question of formation. Who am I becoming by engaging in this practice? And let this form how you engage with sex. Let's look at four specific sexual practices that are common in our current sexual landscape and see how they form us. Okay, so we to start with the first one, pornography. After the five cultural shifts in sexuality, Porn is almost a universal experience for digital natives, and it is treated as a given and a healthy expression of sex in the cultural story. But like all sexual practices, engaging with porn shapes us. And the question then is, how is porn forming me? Well, studies show that watching porn literally rewires our brains, so it is shaping you quite literally. According to a recent study, the more porn a person has used, the less his reward center activates when porn images were flashed on a screen compared to non-porn users. Porn creates a dopamine addiction, which inherently requires a greater stimulus each time to reach just the same level of stimulation. In terms of porn, this means more and more hardcore material must be consumed to get just that same initial level of sexual satisfaction. Not surprisingly, given this fact, studies show that porn use builds up a tolerance for arousal, which then creates less relational and sexual satisfaction in actual sex with real people. Porn use also alters our sexual tastes. The need for greater stimulus requires more and more extreme material, usually involving aggression, to activate our sexual arousal. And this reality leads to really frightening character formation. In a study on porn use, researchers found that those viewing porn regularly reported higher levels of willingness to commit rape, sexual callousness, and sexually aggressive behavior compared to non-porn users. Watching porn is literally changing our characters. Protracted porn use also correlated to lower empathy for other people. Additionally, with porn now becoming the main source where adolescents learn about and form their understanding of sex, women reported feeling pressure to play out scripts male partners had learned, not in real sex, but in pornography to include uncomfortable and even painful sexual acts. In addition, the porn industry has created huge markets for human trafficking and child sexual abuse and terrible, terrible injustices against people. According to Pope John Paul, the problem with porn is not that it shows too much of the person, but that it shows far too little. Porn dehumanizes a person and reduces a full fledged human being made in the image of God to their sexual acts and their body parts. But Jesus says that we are our bodies and our bodies are ourselves and that sex cannot and should not be separated from the experience of a full, complex, storied human being made in the image of God. Sex is not just about two body parts bumping together, but about two lives, two intricate, complex, multifaceted beings coming together with all of our emotions, stories, thoughts, scars, and beauty, and porn can never capture the reality of two people becoming one. So the question is not, is porn good or bad? But who am I becoming emotionally, relationally, physically by watching porn? Is this forming me more into the image of Christ or less? Now, even if you agree that watching porn is not forming you more into the image of Christ, we know that moral standards plus our willpower does not equal holiness, it equals failure. Relying on our own willpower to break the dopamine cycle that porn creates is simply setting us up for failure and shame. Now, addiction to porn is defined as spending 11 to 12 hours a week thinking about searching for or watching porn. And I want you to examine your engagement with porn. Just take this next month to track how many hours a week you spend thinking about searching for or watching porn. Now, if it runs in the neighborhood of 11 to 12 hours, That means that you are addicted and you need real help, just like any other addiction to alcohol or drugs in order to find freedom. Do not deal with this on your own. You don't need to. There are wonderful ministries and groups specifically designed to help people find freedom from the power of addiction. Talk to any of us and we can help you get connected. And even if you weren't technically addicted to porn, by this definition of 11 to 12 hours, porn is still messing with your dopamine receptors and neurally rewiring your brain. So treat it with the seriousness that it deserves. It is not a moral failing that you are unable to will yourself out of engaging with porn because that's almost impossible. Anything with the power to literally rewire your brain needs the safety and support of a community to battle against. So become someone who asks for help. You are not alone and freedom is possible. This leads us then to the second sexual practice, masturbation. We're just going to get down and dirty today. Um, A lot of people ask, is masturbation in the Bible? And no, technically, It is not. Um, But that doesn't mean that people weren't masturbating in ancient Israel. My son discovered his penis at the age of one and a half and is still jazzed about it. So I'm pretty sure people figured out masturbation before the 21st century. But while the Bible does not explicitly address masturbation, apologist and Christian thinker and writer C.S. Lewis has some incredible insights on masturbation that I think help us answer the, how is this forming me question. So here's what he writes in a letter to a young American friend asking for C.S. Lewis's advice on the topic. Now, Lewis's friend is a man, so the example takes the male perspective, but masturbation is not limited to men. I struggled with masturbation for many, many years, so if you are female, this totally applies to you too, just switch the pronouns. Alright, so here's what he says. For me, the real evil of masturbation would be that it takes an appetite which which in lawful use leads the individual out of himself to complete and correct his own personality and that of another, and then turns it back, sending the man back into the prison of himself, there to keep a harem of imaginary brides. And this harem, once admitted, works against his ever getting out and really uniting with a real woman. For the harem is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifice or adjustments, can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions which no real woman can marvel, rival. Among these shadowy brides, he is always adored, always the perfect lover. No demand is made on his unselfishness. No mortification is ever imposed on his vanity. In the end, they become merely the medium by which he increasingly adores himself. It is not only the faculty of love, which is thus sterilized, forced back on itself, but also the faculty of imagination. And I think this is a really interesting and cool insight. He continues, the true exercise of imagination, in my view, is A, to help us to understand other people, and B, to respond to, and some of us, to produce art, but it also has a bad use. To provide for us in shadowy form a substitute for virtues, successive distinctions, etc., which ought to be sought outside in the real world. For example, picturing all I'll do if I were rich instead of earning and saving. Masturbation involves this abuse of imagination in erotic matters, which I think is bad in itself, and thereby encourages a similar abuse of it in all spheres. After all, the main work of life is to come Out of ourselves, out of the little dark prison we were all born in. Masturbation is to be avoided as all things are to be avoided which retard this process. The danger is that of coming to love the prison. Now echoing C.S. Lewis's sentiment, Saint Augustine says that sin is loved turned in on itself. It is the collapsing of desire inward. Sexual desire is meant to drive us outside of ourself, to find completion and connection in another. But real sex with real humans requires us to grow, to lay down our selfishness, to put the good of another above our own ultimate pleasure. It is a mutual act, not a self-serving act, and thus sexual desire encourages us to grow. But masturbation turns our sexuality inward not encouraging us to grow or become more sacrificial or more Christ-like. Is it okay if I masturbate then? That's not the question. The question is, who am I becoming by engaging in masturbation? Now, I find that masturbation is a great place to practice examining our desires. So instead of blindly following our desires, let's stop and ask, why do I want what I want? because masturbation often serves a very functional need in our lives. It doesn't often just come out of nowhere. So I want you to ask, what need is masturbation filling for me? I know for me, I was pretty depressed and masturbation gave a much needed dopamine hit in my life. Do you find yourself masturbating when you're stressed or when you're bored or when you feel lonely or when you feel like escaping? Maybe just when you're horny, For this next month before you masturbate, I just want you to take a brief pause and stop and ask yourself, why do I want what I want? Your body has legitimate needs and it is important to meet those needs. But first you have to figure out what that need is. If you find that it's often depression driving your masturbation, start seeking help for your depression. If you find that it's stress, how can you start rearranging your schedule and your life to reduce stressors? If you find that it's boredom, look for a hobby that you enjoy. If it's loneliness, how can you start pouring into relationships and strengthening your friendships or maybe making some new friends? If it's horniness, what is a physical activity that you could take up up that helps channel your sexual energy? Maybe it's running or ballroom dance or ultimate frisbee. Now, in this period of developing other ways to meet your human legitimate needs, don't worry about how much you masturbate. That's not the point. Instead, focus your energy on forming a life that meets your real human needs in a flourishing way, and then see how that affects your practice of masturbation because it will probably go down. Okay, next one is dating, or more specifically, it is the hookup culture that has risen around dating with the new emergence of dating apps. Now again, dating is also not in the Bible. Dating didn't exist in the ancient Near East, so there's no specific verses on thou shalt date or thou shalt not date. So we're instead going to look at how dating culture, specifically dating apps, can form us. Now, according to an article on dating apps, dating apps were compared to Amazon Prime to deliver you hot people by some people who use them. Instead of being reduced to the two or three people that you might actually meet at a bar in real life, your sample size swells to the hundreds. And with so many options, it's easier to be more and more exacting in our tastes and dismissive of people for shallow reasons. And how you decide to pursue or not pursue someone can change. Now in Greek, there are four different words for love. There is eros, which is sexual desire, storge, which is this sense of like wonder and excitement, Um, philia, which is friendship or brotherly love, and then agape, which is unconditional love. Now dating culture and hookup culture especially has changed the way that we approach relationships in real life by ordering these loves like this. Okay, so first you open up your app and you whip out eros. Are they hot? Would I have sex with them? Maybe even the first time I met them. If yes, you hook up. And then if they were a good enough ride, in the words of Michelle, you move on to storge. Can I have a fun, exciting time with them? After we have a bunch of fun, maybe some cool dates, maybe some more sex, then you open up philia. Do I want to build a friendship with this person and start limiting my choices and options and having to invest some real energy into the relationship. If that answer is yes, and the relationship still seems to be going well, maybe we'll get to number four, agape. Maybe if we're friends, let's spend our lives together. Now God's approach to marriage and relationships, however, asks us to totally flip the script. In God's order, we start with agape. Am I willing to offer them sacrificial care in the way of Jesus? In other words, am I in a good enough place emotionally and spiritually to care for the good of another human being and lay down my own selfishness for them? If not, I might not be ready for the commitment of marriage. Number two, Philia. Are we friends who connect well and resonate in multiple areas of life? If yes, you move down to storge. can we build a life of genuine united vision and excitement about our future together. And then if yes to that, then we move to Eros. I will commit to you and care for you, and then we will consummate our love and sexuality. Sexuality is meant to be this beautiful gift that is enjoyed in the context of marriage, which is the only relationship that is strong enough, robust enough, safe enough, and committed enough to contain the power and fragility of sex. Ordering our pursuit of one another with arrows first results in deep pain and hurt. When you are discarded, as soon as you've had sex or the person you slept with is back on Tinder before they've even put their clothes back on, you've been used. Your personhood was not treated with the dignity and care that God designed you for. You were made for more than this. God designed you for whole person sex contained in the safety, joy, and pleasure of being fully known and loved in a lifetime commitment. And the foundation of that sort of relationship is found in agape, then philia, then storge. When those loves are aligned, Eros is ignited not just once, but for a whole lifetime. So are dating apps sinful? Again, wrong question. Obviously, you have to meet someone somewhere, and dating apps can be a useful tool. The question is, how is using dating apps forming me and my character? What loves am I using to evaluate a future partner? Who am I becoming by using dating apps? As we date, let's try to order our loves around the story that leads to flourishing and joy. All right, so the last sexual practice that I wanna examine together is cohabitation, which is just living together before marriage. Now, Pastor John Tyson compares cohabiting relationships to subprime relationships, which is like the subprime mortgage crisis. Um, And similar to subprime mortgages, cohabiting relationships are high-risk projects with little or no lateral security. They are basically designed to fail. And the statistics back it up. Only one in five cohabiting relationships end in marriage. That's 20%, not great odds. But even if you are in that 20% that does happen to get married, cohabiting before marriage significantly increases the likelihood of divorce. Statistics show that women who cohabit multiple times before marrying divorce more than twice as frequently as those who only live with their future husband. Studies also show that serial monogamy, which is multiple successive sexual relationships, actually hinders hinders eventual marital satisfaction. And that sexual experience before marriage is a good indicator for an increased likelihood of increased infidelity in marriage. Are you surprised? Our cultural messaging around sex says that you gotta try it before you buy it, that you need a test drive, that our sexual activity before marriage doesn't matter at all. But if you want to get married, stay married, and be satisfied sexually in marriage, the statistics show that cohabiting is a terrible choice to make. And when you think about it, these results aren't actually surprising because it actually makes a ton of sense. John Tyson says it this way, when you live in the Christian vision of sexual formation and you use the season of your life to not follow your appetites, but you redirect them towards Jesus, you literally in your moments of need have trained yourself for covenantal faithfulness. But if you just give in to your desires at will, and then all of a sudden you find yourself having to have sex with one person for the rest of your life, You literally haven't trained your character, your practices, or your body to say no to desire outside of God's will. So trying to turn the tap off just because you set a vow becomes practically very hard. Choosing to cohabitate before marriage does not set us up for success, and it undermines the formative practices that will enable us to have a healthy, flourishing marriage. Just because you get married doesn't mean other people become less attractive. Our formative practices give us the legs to carry covenantal faithfulness for a lifetime and to reap the joys and benefits of a lifetime of committed love. So the question isn't, is it okay for me to live with my boyfriend? The question is, who am I becoming by cohabiting? Am I forming myself for covenantal faithfulness? So those are the four practices that I really invite you to think about. Porn, masturbation, dating culture, and cohabiting. Now, I don't want to give the impression that following God's design for sex is easy or carefree because every choice against promiscuity and sexual sin will feel like suffering. These choices are swimming against the whole current of our current sexual story. Choosing to form your desires may not just make you feel isolated or alone or rejected by some, but it may actually feel like suffering. Hebrews 12:11 reminds us that no discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It's painful, but afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. It is easy to not think critically about our sexuality. It is easy to simply gratify each desire we have as it arises. It is easy to simply fear our sexuality and ignore it rather than engage thoughtfully with it. It is easy to choose what is convenient, what requires the least effort. It is easy to make choices based on what everyone else is doing rather than based on who you want to become. But as we've seen, the easy way does not result in the painless way. There is immense collective suffering around our sexuality that does not bring about the deep, abundant flourishing that we long for. Maybe the story that we've been swimming in for the past 50 years doesn't shape a flourishing sexuality, a flourishing life. Maybe it's the way of Jesus that results in the formation of whole sexual beings where our formed sexuality leads to contentment and satisfaction, safety, stability, Enjoy. So I wanna ask what aspect of your sexuality are you struggling with? What sexual practices or tastes or desires are you entertaining or bending to? What do you want for your sexual self and your whole personhood, not just now, but for a lifetime? And I wanna ask who are you becoming by how you use and engage with your sexuality? Now, it's easy to get to a place of despair about our sexuality. As we said before, our sexuality often carries deep pain and scars. You don't know what I've struggled with. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what's been done to me. You don't know what the images are in my head. You don't know the strength of my temptations, the desires that consume me and that I wrestle with. You don't know how unlike Jesus I am in my sexuality. I am too far gone. I'm too tired. I'm too hurt to change now. And I know that you might feel that way. I know the hurt and shame and struggle and confusion that we hold in our sexuality, the shame, the guilt, the anger. But I want to point you to the people that were accepting Christ in the New Testament. It wasn't the religious know it alls, the people who had everything together in these like moral, perfect, upright lives. It was the people who were prostituting themselves, the people committing adultery, the people cohabiting, the people engaging in extramarital sex, the people ostracized by their communities for their sexual practices that were falling into the arms of Jesus. It was people with sexual pasts and brokenness and real struggles in sexuality who were embraced and welcomed into Jesus's presence and love. God can handle your sexual self. God can handle your sexual past, your sexual confusion, your sexual struggles. Your sexuality does not define you nor condemn you. Your sexuality is an integral part of you, but it is not the summation of who you are. The summation of who you are is a dearly loved and precious child of God, bought and paid for by his bodily sacrifice on the cross, where he washed away all of your sin. Your sin before, your sin now, your sin ever after. You are washed, clean, purified, and sanctified in the eyes of Christ. Over and over in the gospel, Jesus puts himself between the guilty and the accuser to create space for grace. When the woman caught in adultery was prepared to be stoned, Jesus said, I do not condemn you. And then he invites her into a life of flourishing, saying, go and sin no more. With the woman at the well who is living in sexual sin and completely despised by her community for her choices, Jesus met her as a woman of dignity, with compassion and saying, I have living water. Do you want it? Jesus doesn't condemn us. Examining our sexual practices is not about condemnation or shame or guilt. It is about turning to Jesus and asking him to stand between the guilty and the accuser, even if that accuser is myself, to create space for grace. There is abundant grace for you. And it is in this space of abundant grace and deep love that we can begin to form our sexuality. Jesus invites us into love. And life and flourishing with all of our beings, including our sexuality. He says, I have living water. Do you want it? Let's pray. God, we surrender our sexualities to you, Lord. Um, Sexuality is so complicated and so difficult, and we can't unpack a conversation that's so weighty and deep and personal and just 40 minutes on a Sunday, Lord, but I ask that this starts the conversation, that we start examining our sexual practices and how they are forming us, who we are becoming with our sexuality, because we are our bodies and our bodies are us, Lord. As much as is possible, we come to you and we ask you, Lord, shape me, form me, let me give all of myself over to you, all of my states, even my aroused state. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at DamascusRoadTucson.com.